Savor 2011 coverage by Craft Beer Radio from Friday, June 3rd. Savor Educational Salon. Beer and Just Desserts with Brewery Obergang and the Church Key. If you haven't been welcomed to Savor already, welcome to Savor. I, ba- based upon the, uh, the giggly, chattery uh, sort of buzz in the room... I would guess that you've already enjoy, enjoyed Saver uh, somewhat already, and that's, that's a great thing. Oh, and here comes the beer already. That's great, too. Um, uh, good evening. My name is Ray Daniels. I am uh, your host uh, for our salon this evening. Uh, I'm also the uh, founder and director of the Cicerone Certification Program, it's a uh, beer sommelier uh, certification program here in the United States. And uh, I am here to uh, introduce our speakers and uh, to sort of moderate things as we go on. Um, one of the things we are doing tonight is we are recording uh, all these sessions. And uh, the folks from uh, Craft Beer Radio are recording them, and they will be uh, uh, playing them as podcasts online. You'll be able to go and listen to them again in order to make sure that you, as well as our speakers, uh, are recorded uh, when you, when it comes time to ask a question, you want to ask a question, get the hand up. I will bring you this very mic that is in my hand and I will have you speak into the mic just as I am doing now. And we will have you recorded for posterity and our speakers will actually be able to hear you as will other people in the room. Uh, as many of you probably know, yes, sir. <laughs> no, no, not now, Larry, not now, Larry. Um, uh, as many of you probably know, Saver is put on by the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association is a Boulder, Colorado-based uh, trade association uh, for small and independent craft breweries in the United States. Uh, they also put on a little event called the Great American Beer Festival that some of you may have, may have heard of. Uh, put on in Denver every year. How many people have been to Great American Beer Festival at some time or another? Yeah, okay, good, good. Um, and uh, they also uh, do things like uh, publish uh, craftbeer.com, your all-inclusive one-stop shop for uh, craft beer information. And, um, uh, and obviously, they put on uh, this event here tonight. Um, as you might guess, uh, and I hopefully, uh, when you walked into the hall tonight, uh, y- if you hadn't been here before, you were pretty impressed. It's uh, quite a venue, uh, I think. And I've, uh, there was a, one, a veteran brewer, um, uh, Fal Allen, I saw earlier tonight. And he walked in and he was like, he was like a, a five-year-old, you know, going to school on the first day. He was just giddy with excitement uh, to be here uh, at Saver and to be in this facility. Uh, so it is an, an awe-inspiring place. And as you might guess, it takes a lot uh, to make an event like this happen. And so I do want to uh, thank our uh, sponsors uh, of the uh, event. And I'll just uh, mention them uh, to you. Uh, the Reyes Beverage Group, uh, Brewery Omegang, who we have represented on our panel tonight. Uh, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, uh, Samuel Adams, CraftBeer.com, Allagash Brewing Company, The Brooklyn Brewery, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail Brewing Company, New Belgium Brewing Company, Rogue Ales, Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Victory Brewing Company, the fine folks at uh, Crosby and Baker, suppliers of uh, brewing ingredients, uh, Draft Magazine, uh, GreatBrewers.com, Oak Beverages, Inc., and Spiegelau, the uh, glassmakers. 
So we uh, want to thank all of them uh, for their sponsorship of uh, the um, Saver event. Now, thank you very much. Uh, this uh, uh, event tonight might be uh, uh, subtitled uh, the Rising Star event uh, because two of our speakers uh, have been recognized by Star Chefs, uh, StarChefs.com, a, uh, a sort of industry insider uh, organization that looks at uh, the uh, restaurant and hospitality industry, really from uh, those who work in the industry. Uh, High-class uh, operation. Uh, they don't give out kudos lightly. And uh, two of the three uh, folks who are involved uh, tonight uh, have been called out recently as uh, rising stars in the uh, D.C. Uh, scene. Uh, Tiffany McIsaac, uh, our, our, our our not quite present yet uh, third speaker. She'll she'll be coming up later. Uh, Tiffany is uh, a pastry chef, and she works at uh, Birch and Barley uh, here in D.C. Uh, and uh, she is in the kitchen right now, whipping up uh, the stuff that we're going to be having tonight. She don't trust nobody to do it right. So I just want you to know that she's taking care of you and that she will be here at the end to take her kudos and um, uh, uh, talk to you a little bit about what she's done. In terms of uh, the folks that we've got right now, um, uh, one of our uh, speakers uh, is uh, Greg uh, Ingert, uh, from, also from Birch and Barley. Greg is the uh, beer director and uh, sommelier uh, at Birch and Barley. Uh, he's put together a fantastic uh, beer program. Uh, how many folks have been to Birch and Barley uh, already? Church Key, Birch and Barley. Yeah, if you haven't, I definitely recommend you get there uh, while you're in town, if you're from out of town. If not, come back sometime just to go there because it's great. Uh, they're doing great things with beer. Uh, really are. Um, I, I, uh, one of the great things is they have, uh, uh, I think, 50 different draft lines. Close enough. All right. And uh, they offer them uh, various different sizes. So you're ordering multiple courses with your meal. You can order some four-ounce samples uh, to pair with each individual course. Or like I am, I'm indecisive to uh, different beers to pair with each different course so we can taste them, decide which ones we like the most. And uh, Greg is uh, great uh, at helping uh, make recommendations and, and uh, bring things that will pair, pair uh, great with those foods. Uh, so he also has been uh, recognized uh, as a rising star uh, as a sommelier uh, by Star Chefs. And that was quite remarkable uh, because his work is in beer at this point, even though his training is in wine. And they really had to make uh, an exception, uh, or not an exception, but but to expand uh, what they were recognizing in the sommelier category to begin uh, recognizing beer sommeliers. Um, um, and that's really a special thing and a great thing. So we're very excited to have uh, Greg here uh, tonight. Um, and our third third speaker uh, comes from the uh, from the brewery side. Uh, our third speaker is Phil Leinhart uh, from the Omegang Brewery, and. Um, Now, Phil is the, the brewmaster at, at Omegang. Uh, he joined them in uh, January of uh, 2007, and uh, so he has uh, certainly put his uh, imprint on those beers, and uh, all of you who are in, enjoying uh, the fine Omegang beers uh, in recent years uh, can give credit to Phil uh, for what he is doing there. Um, uh, Phil has... Uh, yes, thank you. I'm seeing some, some appreciation back there. Um, 
Uh, Phil uh, is kind of uh, maybe an unusual uh, pedigree in, in the beer industry uh, because Phil was actually trained in Germany at the Domans uh, Brewing Institute. And we don't normally think of German brewmasters as being uh, the folks who make uh, Belgian-style uh, beers. Uh, but I think anybody who's ever uh, had an Omegang beer uh, would be willing to attest to the fact that uh, Phil's doing a fantastic job uh, with the Omegang beers. Uh, so welcome, Phil. Glad to have you here. Um, so, uh, it's time for me to shut up, sit down, and let these guys talk about uh, the beers and foods they've got. So with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Greg and Phil. Thanks Thank very much. Thank you. So, um, yeah, uh, thank you all for coming out. I think last year uh, we did um, a salon, started at, I don't know, it seems like it was 3 in the afternoon. It's like 6.30. Um, it seems like everybody's a little bit more... Um, energized uh, this evening, which should be a lot of fun, um, but also we'll keep, we'll keep some of the comments brief, I guess, but um, so I think what we're going to do is uh, Phil's going to talk to us about the beers that he's crafted. Um, you're tasting some stuff that nobody gets to taste from Omegang, which is obviously amazing, um, and then uh, I will talk a little bit about the, the, the food itself and then the pairings, and then Tiffany will be out at the end to talk to the geeks about how she's come up with this stuff, and uh, she does amazing stuff that we can do at home, um, and she's just got amazing ideas. So she really is the star of this show, um, and uh, unfortunately, she's like like uh, they're saying like too much of a, uh, a freak about hands-on making. So um, it's great for us food-wise, but she'll be out at the end to talk to us a little bit about it. So okay, well, I'll talk a little bit about the beer. Uh, this is the best way I can describe this beer is a funky uh, fruit beer. Uh, in 2009, we embarked on an innovation program. We were always pretty creative at the brewery, but uh, we decided to get more formal about it and like put pen to paper and, and come up with things. So this is a prototype or a test batch of a beer that's coming out third quarter this year. Uh, the final name is Aphrodite, uh, but it is, as I said, uh, the raspberry and pear are the uh, fruits fairly simple uh, malt bill which most fruit beers are so you don't conflict with the fruit uh, fairly low hopping uh, and then in the bottle refermentation we added uh, Britannomyces bruxellensis to give it a little bit of that funky nature and that's starting to peak out a little bit now you get that horse blanket uh, 4-ethyl guaiacol coming through um, so it has a nice balance. It's not. It's, it has a little bit of tartness from from the uh, the Britannomyces uh, with the fruit and a very nice, uh, clean, fast, uh, crisp finish. So um, I should mention that one of the best things about when we we decided to do this event, um, uh, Steve Cardella, who's our our local Omegong guy in D.C., brought Tiffany and I a bunch of beers, and Tiff and I sat down and we, we talked and we drank and everything. And the, the funniest thing about this beer is actually, I think it's eight percent alcohol. Yeah, about eight percent. It doesn't drink like that, obviously. But when we sat down and tasted it, um, I had had it really cold, and I brought it out, and I was thinking to myself, you know, a little bit of funk, a little bit of fruit, it'd be great at that at that cold temperature even like 40, 42 degrees. Um, but it, was, it wasn't it was as boldly funky. The Brett character, the horsey, earthy farm didn't come out as much. 
um, and it was a, a little bit kind of um, still uh, at that at that temp. So we let it stand, and we went through all the other pairings and came back to it at the end, and it's so much more uh, expressive like it is now. I mean, we've had we pulled this out of the ice a long time ago, and it's just beautiful to think, you know, that fruit beers don't have to be uh, fruit and fruit alone. Uh, in fact, you know, the, uh, the original people who put fruit in beer, I always think this is a wonderful um, story, is that, you know, the Lambic producers in the Piotland around Brussels um, would have been dealing with beers that would have been probably much more funky than this, but would have definitely included, um, Lamb- uh, you know, Bruxellensis, uh, Britannomyces, uh, and they would typically use the fruit that grew uh, very well in that region to... Uh, differentiate themselves from the publican down the street. Um, so if you have three casts of Lambique and you put limes in one, you put cherries in another, all of a sudden you have three varieties of beer because you're all coming off of the same you know, regional uh, brewer. I mean, in many ways, it's kind of like the progenitor to what Churchy does or something like that. You know, He's uh, trying to have lots of things all the time. Um, but those beers would have been funky. All beers would have been funky until... Um, I mean, truly, until the 19th century with yeast science, technology, and things like that. So this is a kind of a nice return. And when you let it come out at, like, 48 degrees or so, it really speaks out that funk. Yeah. Um, and when we sat down to do this pairing, you know, the, I think the, the best thing about beer and dessert pairing is you have very obvious uh, possibilities in front of you. Um, one of the best things about pairing in general with beer is that so many like flavors exist in beer that we can pair with food. You know, so we can match up. We can we can we can do compatible flavors all the time. I mean, at the base of it, you know, toasty, bready, nutty flavors, um, sweeter flavors. All beer has some residual sweetness, except for three-year-old lambic that's been sitting in casks. Everything has some sweetness to it, and most foods we eat have some sweetness. Not sugar, starch. This can be protein. It can be fat. So we always have some kind of compatibility between our food and our beers, uh, and that's a great jumping-off point. It makes it really accessible for everybody to think about. Well, you know, like Hefeweizens are, are banana and spice, and they're light and sweet. We can do this with, you know, you know, lighter, more refreshing things that have a little bit of sweetness. Um, at the same time, as as much as I love the compatibility argument, when we get to dessert, I think that it oftentimes is kind of boring and come off flat. So. For so long, I think people have done like you know fruit beers. Granted, nothing as complex as this, but sweet like fruit beers with fruit and just imperial stouts with chocolate and like that. And that's it. and those go great together as long as the impact is the same. And that's a very tough thing to tread. I mean, if you have an imperial stout that's just a little too big, and you do it with chocolate that's uh, uh, not dry enough, not sharp enough, it's going to overwhelm it, and vice versa. It's the same thing we've learned from wine and, and dessert wines for so many years. Um, what we kind of use as a jumping off point is um, the very things that Tiffany does as a pastry chef. You'll see tonight that everything's composed. The dessert we just had, this is a, um, uh, already behind of course, this is a brioche donut that she just baked backstage um, with lemon and saffron and uh, a little bit of vanilla. So the way that she thinks about dessert is many, many um, disparate um, flavors coming together. They're always complex, but always well integrated, just like a brewmaster is with, with his beers. You're integrating the raspberry here, the pear, the bread. Yeah, well funk, blended, you know? going for yeah. well blended effect. The, yeah, exactly. You're webbing it together. Um, so, what I think about with dessert is rather than just hitting the same flavors, finding a beer that has, I don't know, floral, lemony characteristics that would just lay on top of this and deaden its flavor, think about it um, as if 
the pastry chef and the brewmaster are collaborating, and I'm the guy who put them together. So we have the flavors of this brioche donut, and we have the flavors of of this beautiful, funky raspberry pear beer, and imagine that they all can exist, all the flavors exist as uh, a kind of myriad of ingredients that go together, rather than the food ends here and now we have the, the, the beer or the wine or whatever it is. I think we want to think about it as a larger culinary experience altogether. So that's what we were going for here. Like dusting it with saffron, hitting it with some light fruit, bringing out some like earthy, funky flavors that um, you don't expect from your food, maybe unless you're having wild cheeses or foie or something. Um, and always trying to add a savory element to the dessert. And this beer will continue to develop. I mean, Britannomyces is a very slow-growing organism. So over time, uh, <clears throat> it will change. It should get more funky, more of those uh, different flavors increasing in concentration. Want to tell about the uh, wheat? Is that the size one? The, yeah, that's it's wheat. not out yet. No, this is, that's the same thing. They poured us the same thing. Oh. Well, it's, it's going to be a little bit trial and error, you know. Uh, I expect a couple of years at least. I think there is a point beyond which Brett beers do start to go downhill. You start to get, like, uh, to, to, to my sense of taste and smell, like a rotten pineapple note, and it starts to just get over the hill. You know, it just gets old and, and so forth. Even I mean, like Arval is one of my favorite beers, and that's a Brett beer, and, but I've had really old Arval, and it just kind of past his prime but i'd say like two to three years might be good so so the question there was how how long would that beer age or this beer age did yeah I, and, I, and i'm sorry i didn't hear what what beer is this and it's a this is a a test batch of a of our third quarter seasonal beer this year it's a uh a fruit beer raspberry and pear um Primarily fermented with our house yeast, but then uh, re-fermented in part with Britannomyces bruxellensis. And this will be out in the market in, in third yes, quarter? Yes, third, third quarter. Under Any the idea name, what the uh, name Af- of it Aphrodite. is? Aphrodite. Aphrodite, okay. Or Excellent. Aphrodite. I don't know which one. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Aphrodite sounds better. We'll go with that one. <laughs> we'll ask Larry later. So the question nah, is... Yeah, cellar temp. You know, fridge is a little bit too cold. Dark, you know, cool. Yes, definitely under 70. I'd say more 48, 50. 55 at the yeah. top. I will say... Um, uh, hmm? What's that? Yeah, I'm ch- put a thermometer, thermometer in there and see what the temperature is. You don't want it too warm. You know, because it'll kind of age too quickly. Um. Right, okay. Okay. Here's, okay. So here's a plan of question. All right. This is a guy's. Rese- you know, I'm like, hope he doesn't ask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the Belgian polar bear. Nope. <laughs> no, I refuse. Okay. Um, no, I, I think it'd be interesting if you told people about how. Um, you refermented the kegged version of this beer because you can't referment. Yeah, well, because we're um, 
we're going to be putting this beer out in both kegs and bottles. Uh, and the, the, the bottled version we just brewed uh, last week will be packaged next week. But the keg version was brewed about uh, seven weeks ago. And we added the Britannomyces right to the primary fermentation. And we have to do that because uh, Britannomyces can metabolize more complex sugars that Saccharomyces yeast can't. Um, so you have to give it that time to fully attenuate the beer. Um, and because if that, any Britannomyces got into the keg of beer and like all those sugars were metabolized, the Britannomyces would still be creating CO2 in the keg, so it would become so carbonated that you couldn't even pour it. So we, you have, you know, if you primarily ferment with Britannomyces, especially what's going to go into a keg, you have to make sure it's fully attenuated and fermented out. So I think um, we have uh, Tiff's second uh, dessert coming out right now. Um, you should be drinking the uh, the Abbey wheat. Abbey wheat, right? yeah. It should we, be. We need to get one of those up here, actually. I don't think they poured any yet. I don't see. Oh, you got yeah, one. They have them. Okay. So we're about the, So the dessert that we have coming out is called Ants on a Log. Um, one of the fun things about um, Tiffany's um, kind of ideology behind her her desserts is she loves to reimagine um, childhood dessert favorites and things like that. Um, so what we have here um, is we actually have a house-made Oreo um, cookie kind of crust on the base. We have peanut butter uh, cheesecake atop, um, plumped raisins, peanuts. Um, this sorbet we spun. Well, yeah, that's what. Thanks. Uh, no, it's not. Um, the sorbet. No, yeah, it's that's good. Sorry. The sorbet that um, she's spinning back there is made with celery, actually. So this okay. is back to what I was saying before. It's like um, these flavors don't have to be just sweet or chocolatey. They can be savory. And she does a lot of great things with that. We have some um, micro-celery atop, garnishes you wouldn't expect. And um, one last thing that's really cool is you see this, like, dust on, on the ants on a log? This is called, we call it peanut powder. We take peanut butter... Uh, and add um, something called tapioca malodextrin, which literally sucks the fat and the, the hydration out of the peanut butter and leaves it this beautiful, like, powdery consistency, which is great for dryness, which we see at the finish of a lot of our great beers and stuff, so. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's actually the Abbey. That's the Abbey. That's the aged Abbey. They had a missed this label bottle. They poured this. It's the same beer. Okay, the, the Abbey Wheat is, again, uh, a test brew for a beer that uh, we don't... It may come out some at some point on the market. It's uh, possibly next year. But it was uh, kind of brewed in the Abbey double style. Uh, Swedish, darkish with some... Uh, uh, fermentable sugar, but also a high amount of, uh, of wheat malt, about 40%. So kind of unique in that sense, using a different grain. Uh, and I believe this version may have been uh, fermented with the Chimay yeast, uh, just to give a different twist. That's something we're doing uh, more, that I plan to do more in our brewery. I don't know if anybody here has had uh, our... Uh, Noma Gang, which was a collaboration with the Schuf Brewery, 
in uh, Belgium, our sister brewery. It was, it was very exciting because it was the first production beer uh, at Oma Gang that we brewed without our house, with a different yeast strain than our house strain. And uh, that's when you can really uh, start creating very different flavors and aromas. You know, I mean, you can do that with different malts and ingredients and hops and stuff like that. But when you start using different yeast strains, then you really can start expanding that palette of, uh, of uh, flavors and aromas you can create. So that's something we plan on doing more in the future, I would say. So um, the idea with this one, again, it's like, you know, cause so we, if you sit down and think about the flavors you're getting from the ants on the log dessert, you have this, um, obviously, peanut butter is the, is the primary thing going on here. We have nutty caramel. You have this figgy, toffee-ish, raisiny quality. So someone might say, oh, let's do this with, like, a barley wine, you know, or, or an old ale that has a little age on it. But I find that sometimes it just that's just like you know replicating what we're doing in the kitchen on the floor. So instead, we want to bring something that um, has a little bit of brightness to it. It's got that light, like weedy, uh, slight like sweet tart flavor in the finish, digging into the carbonation, which is one of our main assets with beer uh, for pairing. Letting that big bubbly carbonation dig into the the, the richness of the the peanut butter cheesecake, blow it open. Not worry about saying, oh, this beer is going to taste like peanut butter or like Oreos underneath, but allowing the flavors to work in Congress with that, um, to, to kind of try to develop a broader, wider range of flavors and more complexity. That's not necessarily uh, one of the big things that I have a, a problem with, with um, well, frankly, with a lot of beer critics and, 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 and beer reviewers and stuff is sometimes... They're, they're known for um, uh, mistaking uh, intensity for complexity. And um, I think that it, were you to smash a brownie sundae with imperial stout every time, it could be delicious. I'm not saying it won't be, but it might just be like intense, intense, intense. But it's more fun um, work or not to really play around with trying to develop this kind of subtle um, complexity where you're bringing so much to the plate through the beer and through the dessert or any kind of dish that it, it just widens the, the array of flavors that are happening. The, it's just kind of a little more interesting. Huh? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who's not going to like that, right? Exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, it's just our chosen strain that we culture and use to ferment all our beers. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't something we cultured from that environment. It originally came from Belgium. But, it, <clears throat> you know, in the beginning of Oma Gang, they went through a couple of yeast strains and settled on one that is then kept by an independent lab and they send to us every six weeks or so. But as we get more uh, lab c capabilities, I plan on keeping all culturing on site um, just so we can control it uh, better. Well, no. I, I mean, uh, it just... No, is what, what, what... What the question was... what. What makes a strain a house strain? Am I correct? 
and just your chosen strain that you choose to ferment either all of your beers or a select. I mean, a lot of breweries use multiple strains. But as I'm saying, is up until Noma Gang, we only used one yeast strain for every beer. Noma Gang was a different yeast strain. But when then, uh, as far as culturing, right now we have an independent lab, White Labs, who maintains our pure yeast strain on mother culture and propagates it up every six weeks and sends it to us. Uh, but in the future, as we get more laboratory capabilities and a, a yeast propagation system, I won't use an independent lab. I want to have that control on site, you know, so we know, you know, if you, by using an independent lab, you're losing a little bit of control. So um, let me let me just tell everybody, um, right now, we have our Tiffany's version of a pudding pop coming out, okay? So it is, uh, I'm not going to uh, eat it in front of you. Uh, <laughs> I am. Uh, I just tried to. It was gonna be awkward. So, um, but um, yeah. So this is our pudding pop, and it is uh, fantastic. Um, what we have, what she's done here in the center is um, actually the the interior of the pudding pop. It's been dipped in chocolate. Is something called janduya, which we serve at a restaurant pretty consistently. Um, it's a, a wonderful kind of panna cotta dessert that's balanced. So it's not overwhelmingly chocolatey, though it has chocolate in it. Great hazelnut um, characteristics, vanilla, cream, everything in balance. It's kind of like Nutella uh, when it's, when it's uh, a little closer to, to room temperature. And, um, and then we've laid it in a bed of uh, some hazelnuts. So um, again, paying attention to the way that, that the, the pastry chef kind of puts together these desserts tells us so much about what we want to pair with it. Um, when you first taste the, the exterior, you're like, chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. But of course, the beer that we have coming out is not chocolatey really at all. Uh, I mean, maybe it has a little bit of like, uh, like leathery chocolate to finish or something. Yeah. But um, this is the Omegong Abbey from 2004. Four, Cave yeah. Age. yeah, this is Cave Age and uh, Howe Caverns. Uh, which are some limestone caverns about 45 minutes from Cooperstown. Unfortunately, we still can't put our beer down there because they're under new ownership. But uh, very interesting beer. I mean, quite different from a fresh, if we had a side-by-side, uh, fresh abbey. A fresh abbey might be much brighter, estery, fruity. Uh, this is obviously, it's a, well, it's about seven years old. Um, develops... Uh, Especially the darker beers can develop like port-like qualities, uh, leathery, um, sherry-like. Uh, this I consider this one of our most sellable beers, next to Three Philosophers. Um, some people like to age our, our pale beers, like uh, Hennepin. Uh, me, myself personally, I don't like aged Hennepin. I like it fairly fresh. Uh, in general, to to me, pale beers don't age as well as dark beers. Dark beers have things like melanoidins that are antioxidants and can when they oxidize they take on uh, more interesting flavors than a paler beer which is will take on a classic like papery uh, cardboard oxidized flavor well, and also i mean the th thing about that is that literally antioxidants are antioxidants like they, they keep oxygen out i think the, the thing about um vintage beers aging beers is that just like with wine i mean they we guesstimate you know 
10% of the red wine crop of the entire world possibly can age. Possibly. And that means the other 90% should be drank within six months of the release, not the production, of course. They have to account for bottle shock and everything. But um, uh, same with beer. 5% of the white wine. Um, and uh, it is true. I mean, a lot of people, you know, for the longest time, it was alcohol. Is, is, if it's high in alcohol, it ages well. Alcohol is probably the, the last, one of the last reasons that people ever aged beers. Uh, one of the last things that they counted on to make beers age well. Uh, first of all, they didn't really have an understanding of why, but definitely the antioxidant effect from melanoidins. Once we, when we're, when we're drying our grain during the malting process, we're developing melanoidins. Um, but they literally are keeping oxygen at bay. The, the, the balancing act of, of aging beer is allowing a, a beautiful, um, delicate deterioration to occur to the beer over time. We don't want it to get hit with, with cardboard, uh, wet newspapers all at once, like a Pilsner will be if you leave it uh, for too long. But uh, a beer that has a little bit of darkness can fight off better. Um, and other things will help you fight better, as Phil said, you know, dark places, right? Um, you know, there's many things, light striking, everybody talks about skunking that happens from light striking. Um, but also, as with wine, you get an oxidation from, from, from light striking your beer. Um, and darker beers definitely keep it at bay. And if you have just a subtle little bit of oxidation occurring over time, this is where you pick up those beautiful toasty, toffee-ish, raisiny, hazelnutty notes. And that was really the kicker for us when we tasted this beer and talked about doing it with, with, with this dessert. We have some kind of uh, restrained chocolate here. Nothing that's overwhelming. It's not like a fudgesicle. It's a, you know, uh, we have a little bit of vanilla, a little bit of cream. We have the hazelnuts at the base of the plate. This is great with the flavors that you could not brew into this beer to taste like this. You would have to brew this beer, lay it down well, perfectly, in fact, to allow this subtle deterioration, this subtle influx of the, uh, the, the basically sherry and port flavors, which we associate with sherry and port because they are deliberately oxidized, uh, primarily in the Solera method. Um, I love to talk about beer and aging beer because the one, one of the best things about beer versus wine with aging is we don't have to. Um, Omegong Abbey is amazing when it's young, obviously, but it's totally different. Um, Aventinus from Schneider is another one. This thing can go for years and it just tastes totally different. As it ages, it loses its fruit, it gets drier. Um, the malty characteristics, the oxidation comes in. It's beautiful and delicious, but neither is better than the other. It's just a, a different thing that we create through a process that's not brewing. Um, however, if you get, you know, Barolo uh, from Piedmont, you can't hazard that same claim of that it's awesome when it's fresh out of the bottle uh, versus 10 years later. Uh, wines typically have to be, particularly reds, have to be aged. Um, they are sandpaper uh, with tannins early on. So this is kind of a thing where it's like, you don't want this now, we have to have it later. We can drink something like the Abbey that is beautiful when young and, and amazing when older. And I think this is really fun for us if you talk about beer and food pairings, is doing some, some uh, vertical tastings where you have Abbey of three different vintages and talking about what it would go with based on that. Because this, this Abbey tastes very, very dissimilar 
from Abby when it's young and equally good mm. and can be so great with the dessert rather than maybe like a third course roast pork loin or something like that, which we might do with it when it's younger. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, having tasted the pairing, um, I, I I picking up a lot of a lot of uh, cork flavor in in my sample. TCA. How how was the beer age? Was it laid down? Was it standing up? Is uh, everybody it's getting that, or was it just my bottle? Typically, it was uh, stood stood up in a crate in the cave. So you sometimes can, you do get like that mustiness. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually it's very interesting that you mentioned that because um, uh, so uh, trichloranosol is the uh, is the chemical we get from cork. That's what you know we talk about corking and wine and such like and things like that. Um, I didn't get it in this one, but I, it, it definitely happens. Um, I think one thing not to just bail beer out at every step, but um, the corking flavor does tend to meld into flavors we have already kind of available to us in, in beer. Um, not to say that it's good, you know, but some people, wine people might be like, you shouldn't have it anywhere at any time. However, um, it does work somewhat well. When, when uh, the Brasserie Dyke um, created Bière de Garde in the 1950s and 60s with their Jean brain, uh, brand, it's it completely not based on historic fact or anything like that. They created a strong um, amber beer um, that, interestingly, they put into uh, bottles with corks and cages to appeal to the, the anti-bourgeois uh, French students of Lille in the north. This is like the 1960s, you know, with all this stuff. But in fact, they were basically packaging it in wine, which was for uh, the elite anyways. Um, it took off, it became huge, everybody followed along, and uh, even today, I believe that the uh, Brewers Association style guidelines uh, does say that for a Bière de Garde styles, um, a touch of cork, TCA, trichloranosol, is acceptable as long as it's um, subsumed. Good or bad, that's just a fascinating thing to me that it's, like, that it's happened that way. And then yeah. frankly, it's because, like, uh, and largely it's because by the time uh, Genlan, Castellan, uh, Thierry's, uh Le Bavassien, all these French Bière de Gardes from Nord and uh, Pas de Calais, by the time they get here, they definitely have a little bit of that kind of quirky character to them. Thank you. Any questions? We got somebody... Um, you, Greg, you were talking about aging the Abbey. How old is this Abbey that we're having? 2004. I would honestly say that um, if you tried to age this in your home or in your cellar, after seven years, it wouldn't taste nearly as beautiful as this does. Um, a lot of times people talk about cave aging, and it could be a lot of bullshit, but... Um, <laughs> And it works. It's good. It works and everything. But in this case, 
and, I'm not, and I was saying earlier, I actually, I grew up in upstate New York, and, and as a uh, kid, we used to do uh, field trips to Howe Caverns. Uh, I think it was a good thing I wasn't tripping over um, bottles of uh, Omegang Abbey while we were uh, touring the caverns, but um, it, um, a cave, if a cave is a perfect thing, it's beautiful. It's not just temperature and the lack of light, which it obviously has, it's humidity. And that's a problem with, with corking. Um, if, it, if you get uh, a, a, lot of, a good amount of humidity, it's going to keep your cork moist and keep it stuck to the, to the, to the bottle. Um, <coughs> if it gets too dry, the thing's going to shrivel up and the oxidation is going to occur way too quick. Um, and that pretty much happens everywhere. Um, unless you have this, a cellar in your home where you have humidity controlled. I think over time I've realized with aging beers and wines that humidity is, it sounds pretentious, but it, it really is. It's like one of the biggest things about it. And this is the same thing for caps too, um, because caps are also stick, will stick on top. Um, if you have a high humidity level, you're going to ensure that you're not going to have a drying out and an over-oxidation, which, I, I mean, this, this, this beer is, I mean, as beautiful as any seven-year-old beer I've ever tasted. But, but like for Ken and Age, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've been now these things have not been sitting in the cave for seven years. They're in for like six to nine months, right? Right, yeah. Twelve months. Yeah. And then they become... Uh, now we, that event. whatever has to happen to them has happened right. at that point. Right, right. Okay, so next, uh, any more questions? Yes. I don't know, offhand? I don't know. You want to repeat the question? What's the ideal humidity? Just, I don't know offhand, but just like uh, Greg says, just enough to keep the cork hydrated, or if you have a crown, to keep that crown liner from becoming uh, dehydrated. Um, so I'd probably say in a 60, 70 yeah. percent range somewhere Absolutely. around there. Yeah. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't want to. This is one of the typical day in Washington D.C. Yeah, in the it, summer. You don't want. No, you don't want that. <laughs> it shouldn't. It shouldn't. It shouldn't taste like D.C. in the summer. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about humidity level. Although it'd probably be too high. Is there any uh, fear of mold uh, with the humidity and the kind of cool but not really cold temperature? Beer mold. Mold in general for the... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, I, the exterior, if you've seen a, a, a bottle of our cave-aged beer, typically it's, like, moldy on the outside of the label, like a, a, a Bordeaux that's been aged in a cave in France, but not within the beer, no. So, okay. No, as long as that humidity is good and you have that tight cork seal, that's the whole... So that's the, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, yeah, I mean, the right humidity is going to keep your beer good inside, but it's going to look like it's not good. Um, so you have to, you know, put on the gloves and the mask and get in there and... Scrub the shit off the side. Yeah. I was absolutely petrified as to what the hell happened to this thing. God knows what happened in shipping. But it turns out the pork had stayed sealed the entire time. Get it out there. Rinsed off the bottle. Made it at least look, you know, semi palatable to everybody else. Pop the pork. Yeah. Awesome. So was, there, was there a question? Yeah, it was more of a comment. Just, yeah, yeah, I guess well, we should. Let's, let's use a mic, okay? <laughs> Listen to Ray. Uh, there's a question over there, so, Ray. Ray. Uh, let me tell you all about the dessert to, you know, that we're having real quick, and then we'll get to your question. He's right over here. Um, again, we're doing uh, chocolate in- indulgence here, the most chocolatey of the beers. We have this wonderful um, almond pound cake. Um, 
Marcona almonds. Um, the thing that looks like it might be ice cream or sorbet on top is actually whipped mascarpone cheese, which is beautifully sweet and has more a higher fat or con- uh, higher fat content than cream, so it could stand up to a little bit more of a rich beer. Um, and then we have these wonderful uh, local strawberries on the side. It's kind of our version of uh, strawberry shortcake. One thing I will say, um, and this is the biggest thing I think about um, beer and food that I've learned over over time, is that. Um, in addition to maybe not just hitting the same flavors all the time, you have to worry about your, um, your dryness effect, i.e. Um, the same stuff that we worry about with wine, which is uh, tannins. Um, we find this in beer through many, many avatars. One is bitterness from hops, of course. You know, there can be roasted bitterness uh, from malts or it, from the, the adjuncts that continue to just like build tea leaves Anything that can give you a drying effect. This is not, this is very difficult to pair food with. Uh, I know for the longest time it was, you know, spicy food and hoppy beer, and that was supposed to be like, awesome, and people still say this. Um, just like with tannins, I believe that hop oils and bitterness really, really blow up spice on your palate. Um, that can be a good thing, some people. I mean, we're all masochistic when we, when we eat spicy food. You know, you just want to sweat all over yourself. So you see people that eat outside in D.C. in the summer. That's why we have a patio, and it's open all summer. Um, but, uh, but I think that they, they, they do blow each other up, just like tannins do with, with spice. Um, one great thing, though, is if you can bring some kind of fat and richness um, to literally drag away those bittering components, the way we would do with protein and tannins. Uh, you know, people say this weird thing. I've always been confused by cutting. They say like this, this, this wine cuts into steak. It doesn't make sense to me on some kind of metaphorical level, but um, it does if you think about proteins, uh, richness, kind of latching on to bittering components and dragging them off your palate. So, um, like when you have something like this, like a pound cake and this mascarpone fatty sweet cheese, it's going to kind of grab onto your roasty bitterness and drag it away and make the beer taste creamier and brighter. Uh, and make the dessert kind of taste fluffier as well. Yeah, so this is our chocolate indulgence. Uh, this has been our uh, January, February, typically seasonal beer for about four years now. Uh, it's, it's changed quite a bit uh, over the years, not so much in the grain bill, but and uh, how we introduced the, the chocolate um, the last couple of years. In addition to Belgian chocolate, right in the kettle, we also use some uh, cocoa nibs in a kettle, which gives a much, uh, it just adds another layer of richness and depth to that, to that chocolate uh, character. Makes it a little more rounder. Uh, question. Sorry to beat the dead horse with the aging of the beer and everything. Uh, y'all, y'all ate your beer standing up in the caves, like I said. Yeah, we when we used to put them, like I say, we're not, yeah. we, we're not in the caves anymore. Uh, I, the only reason I ask is just because, uh, like in Cantillon and uh, Brussels, they they laid them down. Yeah. Uh, is there like a difference in philosophy while y'all do it your way and why they do it theirs, or is it? I, a I, I guess thing, it's, the typical reason to put, put them on their side is that you have the liquid up against the. Uh, Right. The, cork. the cork, you know, to keep it moist. You rely on um, the liquid to, for the moisture yeah, rather than whereas the... Whereas we're, we're relying more on the humidity in the cellar itself. 
But also, I mean, would wine? I mean, very few wines are aged on lees the way that beers are aged on on their their yeast and their reconditioned um, qualities. So, um, I've had those Cantillon bottles that have been aged on their on on their sides, and they come over, and unless you wait a long time, it's a it's going to be a while before that sediment that's just built up on the side, like looking at it looks like a hand, uh, dies down. Which I mean, frankly, I wouldn't. If I got if I got some aged Cantillon, I don't care what's it. You can put your hand in it, and I would drink it. You know, but uh, but like, but you know, but like, but but that that is the thing. I think that like, for something like this, if it's on, a, if it's standing up, and then we can, we don't have to decant it and and do all that uh, dancing stuff. So it won't yeah. it won't be as sedimented and chunky. So, um, before we go on, I just want to well, first of all introduce. This is Tiffany McIsaac, who's making our dessert. <laughs> And this, is, and this is Kyle Bailey, uh, who's the executive chef at Bush Bailey, and they happen to be married. So we got a good deal when we found them. Um, so we're about to try, um, I think we call it an experiment. I mean, Definitely most of experiment. Here. I have no idea if it's going to work or not. Can everybody hear? I don't know how to speak up the whole thing. That sounds, can you hear me? Does that, did that do anything? Um, I've done this a few times for, like, two or three people, so I don't know if it's going to work for 90, but basically we're taking a porous fruit, in this case raspberries, and we're putting it into one of these you can make like whipped cream or soda in it um, with some beer, and we're charging it with seltzer to kind of impregnate it with the beer and give it that same kind of carbonation that you would have when you're, when you're drinking a beer. So I don't know if it's going to work for 90 people, but we'll all find out together. Kind of like I didn't know how dry ice was going to be to pack popsicles on, and I found out that makes them very hard, so sorry yeah. about that, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of beer? What did we choose? Oh, the chocolate. Chocolate indulgence. Yeah, chocolate, indulgence. Indulgence. chocolate indulgence. So basically, douse, you know, everybody talks about dousing fruit with, with a beer. Or, or just like cooking with beer or something. So Tiffany is doused the, the is going to hit the raspberry with the omegong chocolate indulgence, which you're drinking right now. And then rather than just saying, which would be delicious on its own, like this 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 raspberry with chocolate indulgence, she's then going to infuse it with the same carbonation that we find in beer. So when you bite into it, I hope it works because it's really cool. It's going to be awesome. Does, but I don't know. Of course it'll work. <laughs> when you bite into it, it's going to pop right? like a beer. Well, we'll find out together. Oh. <laughs> All right. I'm going to take these down, so we got to go fast. We're just going to take one bowl, and everybody's going to pass it down. It's like a science experiment. All right. So everybody just take one, quickly, so you can really taste the... Do you taste it? Is it, is it? is it zippy? It's crazy, right. isn't it? It's awesome. It works? That's good. So I think that a lot of people, um, one of the things we fought uh, against for so long is this idea of like beer, you, you pair with wine, but you cook with beer. Frankly, wine is better to cook with than beer ever will be. Uh, it brings acid to the plate. Um, but we've been fighting to say like, you don't just have to cook with beer, you can 
pair with beer, but if they want to cook with beer, they're going to do it in a really cool, interesting, and fun way. It's like, if you want it to taste like beer, we're going to shoot it with, with carbon dioxide and make it taste like beer. That's the first Star Trek joke of the night. In the meantime, does anybody um, have any questions, particularly for Tiffany, so she can try to answer them while she's doing this? <laughs> she's all stressed out. I'm not stressed out enough already, so right. please go. Can you repeat how you did that again? Um, basically, you can make your own soda at home. They sell like seltzer, so you can put like a syrup into one of these. It's probably the seltzer, and it stays somewhat carbonated. So basically, what we're doing is Hi, uh, I just want to congratulate Tiffany for her creat creativity. It was great to taste all those desserts. I never tried a celery sorbet, and it was great. <laughs> so thank, thank you very much. This isn't like savor flowers or anything, but it is something. This is brand new. <laughs> Chef, most people think of desserts as something sweet. Do you find it interesting to play off the fact that a lot of beers are bitter when you make a dessert? Yeah, I mean, I think it works really well. They kind of balance each other out. It's like using salt in a dessert. Like, you always want to have a little bit of everything in it. So I think even a really sweet dessert, the beer can kind of help tone that down. Because there's some things that you just can't make them savory, like they're just sweet on their own, but um, the beer tends to help with that, I think. Like, I never really got serving a really sweet wine with dessert, because that's just way too much sugar, so this makes a lot, to me, it makes a lot more sense. I think that's, that's what uh, I was talking about that before with, like, just hitting all the bases. Beautiful thing is, like, Tiffany comes in and does desserts, and it's literally, there's savory elements all over, I mean, celery, sorbet, you know, but it, it, it works. You can compose your desserts like you can compose your entrees and your appetizers. Um, 
And one thing I will say too, uh, one uh, one kind of tip for beer pairings and dessert that I think is awesome: if you get some, if you get some rich chocolatey desserts like fudge cake and stuff, and you hit it with um, some not imperial IPAs that are too leanly malted, that are just really citric and bitter. But if you hit that American strong ale category, big amber malt, big hops, like Sierra Nevada Bigfoot, anything Lagunitas makes. Um, you know they're, they're, they're awesome they're, every beer they make is awesome it's like imperial amber ale it's awesome it's great with chocolate because we love chocolate and fruit chocolate and spice it's great and it will it, the richness will dig up that bitterness so it'll make the chocolate the dark rich chocolate and the hoppy beer seem less dry both become sweeter I had a question about the pairings this evening. Uh, I know we're doing it with, with the Omega Gang beers, which are very, very wonderful. I've always really enjoyed those. But did did we start the food and beer pairings? Like, did we start it with the beer and say, let's match a dessert to it? Or did we have a dessert in mind to try to match to y'all's beers? Or is it kind of just a, hey, let's just see what we can figure out? It's definitely both ways. Always. Both yeah, ways? Always. Back and forth. Like, for this particular... Event, obviously we had the beers and he came and met me because I couldn't make it for Barley came out to Boston the bakery and everybody was jealous because I was sitting there in the middle of the afternoon sipping on delicious beers but um, you know we definitely went with the beer first but a lot of times it works the opposite way where I'll make something and he'll be like oh my god I have the perfect thing for this but, um, uh, to expand on that question um, did you try more than these beers did you try a whole range of beers or did you say, here are the four beers, and let's figure out what will work with them? Or did you try ten beers and say, well, we'd love to try something with well, these we four? we try, like, ten beers every night after work. So we try a lot of <laughs> But we have definitely the best shrimp drink in all of D.C., I'll tell you that. Yeah. Like, the cooks are excited all day thinking about what beer they're going to have. But, um, Some of us do the ten during work, too. <laughs> um, but I, we definitely, we knew the beers... They, they sent us specific ones. I mean, they gave us a few choices, but these we were talked. Yeah, we talked about it. We sat down and we went through everything we could do, and we came up with the beers that we thought would be fun to do based on our experience pairing beers and food together. We went through and said, you know, Steve uh, Cardello came by and said, you know, we have all this available. What do you think? And we kind of said, this would be great. This would be great. This would be great. So that we could show that chocolate beers go with fruit, awesome, and mascarpone cheese. And so we could do a sour Brett beer. Uh, with donuts, you know, and 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 that's, I mean, but a lot of times also it'll be like more, you know, kind of a back and forth, and we definitely altered things as we went too. It's not like we start and that's it. You start with this, and then you know, two days later, it's like actually we're going to do that and that and that. I'm really indecisive, so <laughs> I'm not easy to work with in that way. I just constantly want to change my mind. I got a question for you. Is it easier to pair beer to food than wine? Because I've heard a couple different variations. Is it easier to pair beer to to foods than it is wine? Um, that's, I mean, it's a tough. It depends on what your idea of easier is. I think what I was talking about when we first started, beer. I think is way easier. Beer and food is way easier to get into, because I do believe that deep down, beer, uh, with the exception of a very, very few styles, always has residual sweetness. Always. 
And most of the foods we eat, and certainly the dishes we eat, have some residual sweetness from, from apps to dessert, everything. Uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So you can find uh, flavors that we can say that is like that, and it's great. And they're awesome together. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, and it's, it's amazing. And that, that makes it easier for people to understand, I think. So identify, like, I love this flavor in this dish, and I love this beer. It goes together. So it's way more approachable. Um, because of that residual sweetness we have in all beer. All beer has malt, sugar that goes unfermented. Uh, wine, on the other hand, primarily is dry. Uh, sommeliers and, and, and wine people love to talk big game on sherry and port when it comes to food pairing, but they're not exactly like blown through at the restaurant on a day-to-day -day basis, which is very, it's telling. Um, but also wine people love to talk about carbonation when it comes to food pairing. They get their cavas and their brutes and every now and again an age champagne or something. So um, I think that it, 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 it's kind of easier. At the same time, I don't think it's better at all. I really think deep down that beer, do, beer and wine do completely different things with food. And this is, of course, generally speaking, we could all disagree on this for hours. But generally speaking, I think that wine as a grape-based beverage, as a fruit-based beverage um, that's highly attenuated, most of the sugars are taken out, is, has tartness all the time. Beer as a grain-based beverage has lots of sugar uh, lots of sweetness, which works with fat and protein and all that other stuff, um, and that leaves over. So acid, we don't find a lot in our, our, our meat, our, our, our veg, as well, you know, some fruits and stuff like that. Acid typically was added on to the dish as an additional you know, seasoning or sauce. You know, that's why with whole cuisine, like in France, it's awesome. You have 50 million uh, things going on, and the last dash is that beautiful dry Bordeaux that works well. But with the modern American scene of cooking that's all about like stripping down and letting ingredients speak for themselves, I think beer is more uh, ready to, to work with that food because it has more of the honest flavors of that food to complement. I'm talking about that sweetness, but also we talk about vegetables that we get, like green vegetables. You know, uh, We have hops to go with that as well. So I think that beer is, it truly is more of a complement um, and wine is more of a... Uh, not contrast, but additional seasoning. And all that goes out the window when we talk about sour beers, of course, uh, or sweet wines, but generally speaking, that's the way I would define those two. And as you say, we could spend a couple of days talking about that. Yeah. Greg? Greg, no. Greg? Greg, thank you. This is, this is the sad part of my night. Before we bring things to an end. Ladies and gentlemen, Tiffany McIsaac. What about it, huh? Awesome job. And Greg and Phil, thank you so much for uh, your insight and for putting this together. Uh, nice job, all three of you. Wonderful event. Thank you very much, everyone. This podcast was produced by the Brewers Association and presented by Craft Beer Radio. To find the rest of the Saver podcast, visit craftbeerradio.com slash saver or craftbeer.com. This content is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for details on the licensing.